I've got to travel over the course of my life and preach in different places. And sometimes you walk in that church, there's the baptistry and there's the Jordan River and there's Jesus being baptized by John depicted in that mural. I don't know if that brings back memories. I know my, uh, my grandparents' church had that mural and I always thought kind of maybe that's what it looks like. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it does actual justice to the actual event. And I feel the same way today as I paint a picture uh, of Jesus' baptism that I I'm not sufficient for the task, but thank God His Word is, so all sufficient merit, all sufficient Scripture. If you have your Bibles, open to Mark chapter 1, because here in Mark chapter 1 is one of the most significant events in human history, and it's the event that we look at today where Jesus goes to Jordan and is baptized in that river by John the Baptist. It's very important that we recognize what this baptism is. It is meaningful for us today. There's not a person here today that can't look at this and say, this is meaningful. This is meaningful even for me. Look in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. In those days is a very important phrase because this indicates that Jesus came at a particular time. Paul would tell us that our Lord was born in the fullness of time. His ministry came at a very special and particular moment in human history. And this time is determined by the fulfilled promises now in Jesus from the Old Testament that up to this point were being watched for. Where will the Messiah come from and when will he come? Jesus is a fulfillment of the promises that indeed the Messiah would come in those days, and the place of Jesus' baptism. Notice that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, Mark wants us to know a little bit of geography. He writes to Gentiles who may not have known a lot about the Holy Land, but what is significant here is that Jesus didn't come from a a metropolitan area. Uh, He didn't come from a place where he could say, hey, I was born in wherever I was born because no one would have known where that was. Maybe when you go around and you tell people you're from Fleming Island, you like that. And you go maybe over somewhere where they've never been to this part of Florida. And they're like, where are you from? And you're like, Fleming Island. Oh, I bet it's beautiful there. Palm trees and beaches. And you're like, yes, yeah, sort of. Now, typically, if you're somewhere in the world where they're not familiar with Florida, you might say, I'm actually from Jacksonville. Uh, because they are more familiar with that place. But if you're from Possum Junction, South Carolina, you might say, I'm I'm from Columbia or something like that. That's the way it was with Nazareth. Nobody really wanted to admit from being from Nazareth. It was looked down upon, as a matter of fact. If you're from Nazareth, you uh, probably didn't get an education. You probably weren't much in the way of notoriety, nobility. In fact, Philip uh, asked a question about Jesus who he was told who came from Nazareth. Can anything come? Anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? So Mark wants us to be aware that Jesus comes from Nazareth. This is important, I think, as he relates some statements here about the significance of this baptism. He goes out to the Jordan. The Jordan's important, this river, because it symbolizes a crossing into a promise. Whenever you see the Jordan in the Old Testament, you're going to see it mentioned in different ways. But one way in particular is you find Joshua leading the children of Israel from 
the wilderness into the promised land through the Jordan. Keep that in mind. Because John the Baptist is out in an area where the river is not really wide and it's not a place where people go to really swim or bathe. It's pretty dirty. Why there? Because the greater Joshua is going to come. Joshua's name means salvation. And Jesus, the salvation, is going to come and he's going into the Jordan River not to give people an entrance into a land but into the kingdom of God. This is so significant. When we went to Israel this last time, we went to the place of the Jordan River where we're told this is close to John the Baptist's ministry and where Jesus was baptized. And you would think if you're going to go see the actual place where Jesus was baptized, or at least you're close to it, that's going to be pristine. Uh, it's going to, the water's going to be beautiful. It's going to be a place where people... Um, take care of the area, but yeah, yeah, not so much. I remember going and stepping out of the bus and flies everywhere. The water was dirty. The river was pretty narrow, about as wide as this auditorium is all, which means that just across the river was Jordan. And if you were in Jordan, you could swim across and be in Israel with no problem, except for the fact there were soldiers on both sides of the river. You're not getting over into Israel from Jordan unless you have some sort of reason for coming and permission to be there. I want you to think that way. I want you to think that way. You don't get into the kingdom of God unless you have permission to get in and you have a a way to get in. Jesus is going into this river. It is very significant because he's making, part of this is making a way for us to come into the kingdom. So here you have John the Baptist baptizing in the Jordan. So notice John the Baptist, he's the promised forerunner of Christ. He's preparing the way. Now listen very carefully in this introductory remark. He's preaching a very pointed message. John the Baptist is baptizing. He's baptizing out in the wilderness, baptizing in a dirty river. People are coming to be baptized only if, only if they've confessed their sins and repented. His message is repent. He doesn't baptize everybody. Only people who are willing to repent, turn from their sin to Christ. You're not willing to do that? I'm not baptizing you. Here comes Jesus to be baptized by John. What is John's message? Repent. Then you can get baptized. So the question's got to come up. Why is Jesus getting baptized by John? Had Jesus ever sinned? Would Jesus ever sin? Absolutely not. Jesus never once had a sinful thought, let alone action. He always obeyed the law of God. He always did what was right. And he never, ever did anything that was wrong. And yet he's coming to be baptized like others? Matthew gives us more context than Mark, and I'm not going into all the four Gospels because each of the Gospels give us an account of Jesus' baptism. It's that significant. I want to stick with Mark, but I do want to say this, that when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to be baptized, John had this reaction. You 
should be baptizing me. I should not be baptizing you. And Matthew helps us to understand what Jesus was doing. He said, Jesus did say to John the Baptist, this is right. In essence, this is right. Jesus is coming to be baptized because it's right. And I want us to see the significance of this baptism really in three statements. Really in three statements. Um, if, you have, uh, if you have your Bibles, look in verse 10. Because the, I believe these statements are here very clearly lined out for us and why this baptism is so significant for us today. Verse 10, And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being opened, and they were torn. And the Spirit descending on him, what's the word, y'all? Like. Like a dove. The Spirit coming like a dove. You have quite an interesting contrast here. You have the heavens being ripped or torn open. That's pretty violent. And you have the Spirit coming down like a dove. He's not a dove, but he's coming in that gentle fashion. And then you have in verse 11, a voice came from heaven. That's the voice of God the Father. And so here, I think you're watching this and you're observing that the Trinity is intact here, all, all involved in this significant event. Jesus being baptized, the Holy Spirit there, the Father, God speaking, and He says, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. All right, three statements here that I want us to, to look at, I think will help us understand the significance of this baptism of Jesus. To begin with, number one, this statement. Jesus ad- identifies, Jesus identifies with sinners. Jesus is not a sinner, but he identifies with sinners. Who's coming out to John to be baptized? Sinners who are willing to confess or agree that they're sinners and they're willing to repent of their sin. Jesus is coming into the same water, being plunged underneath like sinners, but not a sinner, because he's identifying with sinners. Uh, This is why I pointed out the fact that Mark tells Gentiles about geography. Jesus is from Nazareth. He's not from a place of notoriety. He's come to identify with people who are also in need of a Savior. Whether they're Gentile, whether they're the down and out or the up and out from Jerusalem, it did not matter. Jesus has come to identify with sinners. I think to make this really clear, look at the next chapter, chapter 2, Mark chapter 2 and verse 15. Mark chapter 2, verse 15. If you're there, say amen. All right. As he, that is Jesus, reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. I believe that many uh, amplifies the fact that there were many sinners following Jesus. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Imagine if social media had been invented in Jesus' day. The comments on the disciples' Instagram page. Yeah, we saw that Jesus. Yeah, he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. Who does that? Who hangs out with that kind of group? Who, who, what kind of rascal is this? 
Now, now Jesus knows they're, they're making these comments. So verse 17 says, Jesus spoke to them. He said, those who are well need no physician, but those who are sick. Now, is Jesus saying that the religious leaders aren't sick? Or is he saying, you don't know you're sick? And if you did, you would know you needed a doctor. I didn't come for those who need no physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, this is Jesus coming to identify with sinners. You probably have heard of doctors who have become doctors in their field because they grew up around suffering and they wanted to alleviate the suffering that they saw in a family member and decided they would apply themselves in a discipline to help in that particular disease or area. You may have even known people who got into areas and received grants from people who could not serve in that discipline but provided money so that there could be an alleviation of the ills that they watched in their own families. They wanted to identify, and everything they could, they would identify with people who are suffering to alleviate suffering. Or, uh, let's look at it from a missionary standpoint. We all know missionaries who have left the United States of America and have moved to cultures that are so unlike our Western culture, and they adopted the dress and the look and the, the language in order to, in that culture, to infiltrate that people group in order to share the gospel. They, they adopted that culture. They identified with people that were not like them so that they might win them. The great physician has done this. The great physician has come to identify with sinners, not only because he's the great physician, but he's actually also the cure. Our great need is a Savior, and we have a great Savior for our need. You need to mark this passage and know this passage. 2 Corinthians 5.21, do you know it? Do you know this passage? 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul writes this. He who knew no sin. Who's the one who knew no sin? Anybody else like that? No. Only Jesus. He, that is God, made him who knew no sin. God made him who never, ever knew sin to become sin for us. So that not only could we sing the song that we just sang, all sufficient merit, but it would actually be true that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Y'all, that's amazing. That's worth coming to church for right there, right? That right there is the gospel. He became a one who would identify with us and save us from our sins so that we could identify with him as righteous by having our sin forgiven. So Jesus goes down to the water. This is an incredible symbolic act of our Lord Jesus Christ. As he goes into this water of Jordan, he's gone into the same water that sinners have gone into that John the Baptist has baptized. So picture this. People confessing their sin, repenting of their sin, broken of their sin, and symbolically their sins are washed away. Symbolically. Their sins are in the water, symbolically. Now, we know the water doesn't wash away their sin. It's the blood of Jesus. But they are symbolically in this water. And Jesus plunges into this same water. I don't know how many of you were here just a few weeks ago, but we had a speaker from a group that we support called the Voice of the Martyrs. And before he got up to speak, he showed a video. And if you were here, this image is probably marked in your mind indelibly. 
It's where one of the believers in a Muslim country who had to serve in a very menial job because he's a Christian cleans sewers, right? And he, on the video, it shows him getting into a sewer, not like storm drainage sewage, but sewage. And he lowers himself into a sewer and begins to clean out the sewer. And it was a striking Video. I mean, I, I still, I, I won't ever be able to forget that video. And as, as nasty as that is, and some of you are like, how, how does anyone do that and do that every day? That is nothing compared, nothing compared to what our Lord and Savior did by leaving heaven and then coming to identify with sinners and on the cross pay for our sin. That is almost beyond, it is beyond imagination. And yet, when Jesus goes into this water, and this, this water, the Jordan, he is being plunged symbolically into sin. And it's a sign, too. It's a sign of how he would deliver us, the Lord Jesus Christ would deliver us from our sin. He would go and be plunged into death, taking the guilt of our sin on the cross, be buried, and three days later, he would raise again. So that Paul would say, this is of first importance. There's so many things about Jesus that are so important. But of first importance is the fact that Jesus Christ died according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried. And that three days later, he rose again according to the Scriptures. So when Jesus goes down into this water, I want you to see the statement here. It is identifying with sinners. Symbolically showing how that he will rescue sinners from their sin through his death, burial, and resurrection. Right, that's the first statement. Let's look at the second statement. And this one I won't spend a lot of time on. It might seem a little confusing, and I don't want it to be. And that is when the Holy Spirit descends from heaven. The heavens are torn apart. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form or in the likeness of the dove. This does not mean he is a dove, but he comes in a gentle fashion. Now, this can be confusing and even misleading and some denominations and religions have said, basically, this is the moment in which Jesus actually becomes God. Or when Jesus actually becomes divine. Some have gone that far. Some have said, this is the time that the Spirit of God comes really to indwell uh, the, the human Jesus. But I don't want us to, to be confused by this. This is simply the Spirit coming with the Father to state that Jesus Christ is indeed the anointed one from God. Here's another way to say the anointed one from God. He's the Messiah. Messiah. Say Messiah. Okay, you just said an anointed one. That's what that means. He's the anointed king. He's not just any king. He's the king of kings. And he's the chosen one of God. He's fulfilling scripture in this baptism when the Holy Spirit then descends this way. Isaiah 42, the prophet says, God speaking, Behold my servant, whom I am upholding, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. There's God speaking, my soul delights in him. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Okay, okay, what's going on here? Well, every Jew that would have been witnessing this event out in the wilderness with John the Baptist, seeing the heavens torn apart, the Spirit of God coming down and anointing Jesus for a task, would have known this is major. 
their minds would have gone back and thought about all the kings that had been anointed to do their, to do their task. Adrian Rogers, he said this, all anointing is, all anointing is, is a special touch for a specific task. David, King David, he's a little shepherd boy, but he was chosen by God to be king of Israel. So Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, brings a horn of oil, comes into um, David's house with Jesse, the father, being there, and all the brothers around, and takes that oil, which symbolically demonstrates the Holy Spirit, and then anoints David with that oil because he's now going to be the king chosen by God to rule Israel. Did the Jews watching this event happen with Jesus, seeing the Spirit come would know that this is the one who is the Messiah, who is anointed of God by the Spirit to fulfill the task of king. He's the king. And therefore, going to lead those who are in the bondage of sin out of that kingdom and into the kingdom of marvelous light. Don't think this is a weird deal going on here when the Spirit comes. Jesus has always been God with the Father and with the Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all being God, always God. But this is the moment in which it is announced. This is the Messiah, and this is the Messiah announced publicly. Third statement, third and last statement. You see, the last statement is from, actually, God the Father Himself. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. You are my beloved son, with you, with you, God says, with you, I am well pleased. Could you imagine having been there? All of these people coming down to be baptized, repenting of their sin, hugging each other, loving each other, all of them out there re- just rejoicing in their salvation. And then the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, comes into the water, and everyone gets silent, everyone gets still, and the heavens are torn apart, and the Spirit descends, and the Father speaks. What's awesome about what he says is that it's already been said. What's awesome about what the Father says here is it's already been recorded in Scripture. In Psalm chapter 2, David writes about the one who would come, the Messiah, the King, who would rule. And as David writes about it, something happens in Psalm 2 that's pretty interesting. The writer who's writing then records He writes and then he records. He writes and then he records the voice of God. Because in Psalm chapter 2, in verse 11, God speaks. God speaks. You know what God says? He says this in Psalm 2, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's just another way of expressing His pleasure, that is, the Father's pleasure in His Son. This passage in Psalm 2 and here in Mark 1 does not suggest that Jesus Christ is a created being, but points to His incarnation of His deity being made flesh. That's why in Hebrews 1 we have this statement that you are my Son, today I have begotten you, says the Father. You also have in Acts chapter 13 the expression of this Psalm 2 concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 13 verse 33, God has fulfilled for us 
through their children by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son today, I have become your father, since he raised him from the dead, never to return to decay. This is God the Father making the statement that this is God in flesh coming to rescue sinners from their sin. That's the statement. That's the statement. It's an amazing statement. In fact, as you continue to read through Psalm 2 that refers to this event, you have where the writer says, Therefore, kings, be wise. Kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, kiss the Son, which means pay homage to Jesus Christ. Bow down before Jesus as king, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are those who take refuge in him. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Hey, listen, kings. Listen, kings. You better take off your crown and you better lay him at the feet of Jesus or you're going to be bent. You either bend or you're going to be bent. You either bow or you're going to be broken. And blessed are all those who trust him. It's just another way To say, blessed are those who are saved by Jesus. Salvation's in Christ. So trust in Him. Now, I've shared with you what this baptism signifies through statements. Let's just kind of flesh this out for the next few minutes. Write these words down because I want want to tell you what this baptism means for us this morning. You said it was significant for me. Why is that? Well, number one, number one, Jesus gives us an example to follow. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ is far more than an example, far more than a pattern, but he is certainly a pattern and an example. We should follow the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is working in us to make us like Jesus or to make us Christ-like. But what we find here in Jesus is the reality that we should follow his example, including in baptism. So let's look at the mode in which Jesus was baptized. Was Jesus sprinkled or was Jesus immersed? He was immersed. So I want to encourage you, if you've never been baptized by immersion, that you follow the example of Jesus and be baptized by going under. By going under, you follow the word baptizo, which means to be submerged. That's what baptism literally means. And so be baptized like Jesus. Martin Luther, whom his followers began a denomination called the Lutheran Church, Martin Luther uh, said this about baptism. He said, I would have those who are to be baptized to be thoroughly immersed as the word imports and the mystery signifies. John Calvin, whose followers began the Presbyterian church, John Calvin, and you know Presbyterians, some of you are Presbyterian, come out of the Presbyterian church, and you know most Presbyterians sprinkle as opposed to immerse. But John Calvin said, the word baptize signifies to immerse. It is certain that immersion was the practice of the ancient church. John Wesley, whose followers began the Methodist church, and you know most Methodist churches do not baptize by immersion, but John Wesley said, buried with him alludes to baptizing by immersion according to the custom of the first church. So I would encourage you to follow the example of Jesus Christ and be baptized by immersion. This is not Baptist baptism. This is biblical baptism. Secondly, be mature in your baptism. When did Jesus get baptized? Well, you would say, in a very particular time, that's what Mark points out. But notice that Jesus is an adult. And he's beginning his ministry. He's making a mature decision, isn't he? How many of you are baptized as infants? 
When you think about the fact that you were baptized as an infant, you were baptized maybe in a Protestant church that baptized you into a covenant that you were taught replaced circumcision. Or some of you came out of the Roman Catholic tradition where you were baptized because that gave you one of the sacraments to help you to enter into the kingdom of God as you were taught. But here's what we know from Scripture, that infant baptism is absent. There's nowhere in the Bible that you will ever find infant baptism. So this is something that is extra-biblical, infant baptism. Pedo-baptism is something outside of the Bible. A Lutheran professor by the name of Kurt Allen said, after intensive study in infant baptism, there is no definite proof of the practice of infant baptism until after the third century. This cannot be contested. So whether you're from a Protestant um, tradition or a Catholic tradition, uh, infant baptism was something that's been imposed on us, not from Scripture, but by different movements and traditions. When should I get baptized then? When I know that I am making a statement like Jesus. I'm following his example. He made a statement. I too want to make a statement. It is to be then done after conversion. Because the statement that we make when we're baptized is this. I have been saved by grace. And you are being, in that moment, a testimony of the cross. Every person who's been born again ought to be baptized. Acts 2.41. Then those who gladly received the word were baptized. Acts 8.13. Then Simon himself also believed, and he was baptized. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached these things concerning the kingdom... In the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. I could go on, but everyone who's saved should be baptized as soon as you can after conversion. After conversion. It is a following of his example. It is also a telling of your exodus. I'm just using words that are similar, so you're going to remember them, helping the children as they take notes. But do you remember when the children of Israel left Egypt, they went through the Red Sea They went through the Red Sea symbolizing the salvation of God. When you go into the waters, you are symbolizing the salvation of God. That you have exited your old life and entered a new life in Christ. And you're not ashamed of Him. You've been set free by God. You would have never been rescued. You would have never exited. You had never had an exodus had it not been for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, thirdly, an expression of our salvation. An expression of our salvation. When Jesus was baptized, notice that there was this voice and the visual. You could see what was going on, the Spirit coming down. You could hear the voice of God. When you get baptized after salvation, you are giving an audio-visual testimony. You're saying, I have come to know Christ, and people are watching and observing the fact that you are following through in obedience. We say it this way, it is a, baptism, is, baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. Um, baptism doesn't save, it tells others that you are saved. And then just as Jesus, think about this for a moment, all right, think about it. Just as Jesus went into the waters of the Jordan to identify with sinners, we get to go into water to identify with Jesus, the sinless. We are identifying with Christ, and we're not ashamed. Jesus paid our full debt at Calvary, He paid everything that was necessary for our sin to be forgiven. Apart from Jesus, we would be dead in our sin. 
Jesus was sacrificed to put away our sins. Hebrew 9.26. He was offered to bear the sins of many. Hebrews 9.28. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.24. He bore our sins. We sing it this way. All the way to Calvary. He shed his blood for the remission of sins. Jesus told us that as he instituted the Lord's Supper and the New Covenant. We are washed from our sins in His blood, according to Revelation 1.5. We are cleansed from our sin by the blood of Jesus. 1 John 1.7, we are saved by His life, His death, and His resurrection. And without Christ, there is no salvation. Water doesn't say. It just helps us to say that we've been truly washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. So therefore, we want to, others to know we are identifying with Him. It, It's an expectation for all believers. Everyone who's been saved is expected to be baptized. We would say it this way. Baptism is the first step in your obedience to Christ. Why would we say that? Because before you tithe, before you sow in, before you teach and serve, You should be obedient in this one area. I mean, if you can't be obedient in baptism, then you're disobedient. Take the first step. Take the steps towards that. You might say, well, I'm ready to get baptized, but I'm waiting till my friends and neighbors can be here a month from now. Am I disobedient? Absolutely not. You made the step. You want people here. But if you're here and you're just kind of rejecting baptism, that would be, as a believer, disobedience. It is your profession of faith. It's a proclamation of the gospel that you believe that Jesus died, that he was buried, and he rose again the third day. And baptism definitely shows that. It is a symbol. It is not salvation. It is not for salvation. I probably have said that, I don't know, six, seven, eight times. But the three R's of teaching are repeat, repeat, repeat. Because I get grieved sometimes when I hear that someone has left a gospel-centered church and they've gone to a church down the road or across the river that is a Christian church. And they're a Christian church. And they preach Jesus and baptism for salvation. And when you preach anything and, you have added to the gospel and the gospel is no longer the gospel. I was with someone this past week and I was, it was, you know, out in public and and, um, I asked this, She's a lady. I said, have you ever been saved? I mean, through a conversation, she, she was helping me with, with some business. And I said, have you ever been saved? And there we were. And uh, she said, no. And she said, but the reason I'm not is because I don't really believe in denominations. And uh, I get that. Y'all get that? Aren't you glad in heaven there's not going to be denominations? Right, like There's not going to be the charismatics over there and the Presbyterians on the other side because you want the loud people on one side and the quiet people on the other. The Baptists in the middle. I mean, in heaven, praise God, no denominations. Are y'all, are y'all looking forward to that? Like all our brothers and sisters that we have disagreements with that are not gospel, we're going to be in heaven in full unity. It's going to be awesome. Like there's other people that we may not go to church with them, but we love them. We don't agree with all their doctrine, but at least they preach the gospel. At least like Philippians 1, Paul says, whether they preach it out of contention or not, at least they're preaching the gospel. I'm for that. I'm grateful for that. But there are denominations. You know why? Because they're distinctives. 
there are some things that we need to be clear about because the Bible's clear about it, and we want to be clear. And we believe very simply and straightforwardly that water baptism is not a part of your justification. It's not part of your salvation. It comes after your salvation. It is a step in sanctification, that is being made Christ-like in obedience, but it does not make you saved. The thief on the cross did not have time to get baptized, but he went to heaven. I'm saying this very clearly because there's a confusion about it, and we ought not be. Salvation is by grace alone, Christ alone. Scripture, Scripture, Scripture alone. Even Martin Luther would say that. Scripture. So it is not for salvation. We have distinctives here. That's why we would say if you're going to be a member of our church, you need to be baptized. You don't have to be baptized at this church. It could be at another church. That's fine. Is it biblical baptism? Because if you automatically say, I don't want to be baptized, you're saying simply, I don't want to be obedient to Christ. What type of person says, Jesus is my Lord, but I'm not doing what he says? If you've not been baptized today in right order, there might be some reasons. And, and one reason is very simple. One reason is very simple that some of you haven't been baptized. And you maybe were as a child, as an infant, baptized, but you haven't been baptized after salvation. It might be simply because no one ever explained this to you. Like you just didn't know. Like you didn't know. And now you do. Now you do. There's others of you who, uh, it's not about I didn't know. It's, it's, it's you didn't know how important it was, how significant it was. I know it's important, but I didn't know it was this significant, and, and now you do. There's some of you maybe are a little indifferent to it. You hadn't thought a lot about it, but now you have to. Some of you, frankly, are prideful. Prideful. I asked one lady why she wouldn't be baptized. She told me she didn't want to get her hair wet. I laughed, thought she was joking. She was not. She must spend a lot of money on her hair. I don't know what that's going to be like. And she could, We're going to lay our crowns at Jesus' feet. She's going to lay her hair at Jesus' feet, I guess. I mean, it's that... Some of them might say, well, if I get baptized, what are people going to think? I've been teaching Sunday school for 20 years. I've been, I'm a deacon. I'm, I mean, a, I'm a pastor. I, I preach the gospel. I leave people to Jesus. They're going to, what are they going to think of me? You know what they're going to think? I don't know, and it doesn't matter. He's worthy. He's worthy. I feel, I feel like it's very important for you to understand that your obedience to Christ is a weapon against, the, against Satan. Some of you may have some difficulty with your salvation, even your assurance. It might be simply because you've never taken the first step of obedience to Christ. You're not obedient to Christ in baptism, and so therefore you don't have his grace of assurance. You're saved, but you can never get your mind around your assurance. And it might be just simply because you're disobedient in this area. Get it right. It leads me to the last statement here that I want to make about our salvation and, our, and the significance of our salvation, uh, or excuse me, our baptism. Our baptism is an exaltation to humility. When Jesus was baptized, the Father said, this is my beloved Son. I am pleased with Him. In Him, I am pleased. When we get baptized, we please the Father. It's pleasing to the Father. There was a prayer that the psalmist prayed in Psalm 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were rent, the Spirit came down, symbolizing for us the reality of the substance of the incarnation, that heaven had come down to earth to offer salvation to anyone who would believe. 
Some of you have never been baptized because you've never been saved. That's the first thing. It's the first step. John the Baptist didn't baptize everybody who came to the wilderness. You read his story. He told some people, no, you can't get baptized. You know why they couldn't get baptized? They weren't sincere. They weren't repenting, and they weren't confessing their sins. Therefore, they weren't saved. You know how in which you are saved? You come not trying to add something like baptism. Hey, I need to get baptized just in case. I need to join the church just in case. No, you come because you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and you come to be saved. Then, get baptized. I have a story probably like a lot of you. I got baptized when I was a little kid, thought I was doing the right thing and wanted to do the right thing, didn't know what I was doing. I later got saved. And then I really got baptized. That's probably some of your stories too. You're shaking your head, some of you are going, yeah, that was me. I got baptized as an infant or I got baptized as a kid or I got baptized as an adult, but I wasn't saved. And then you got it right. But there's some of you here, frankly, you haven't got it right yet. And it's so joyful to be able to just get that right. It's such a blessing to get that right, follow the example of Christ. I want you to stand with me. We're going to have an invitation. And I'm just going to simply ask you, if you need to get this right, say, well, I'm not ready to get baptized today because I want some friends and family to be here. That's fine. But you might be saying, hey, you know what? I need to get this right today. I didn't come expecting to get baptized today, but I need to get this right today. And I'm not leaving until, Pastor, I'm obedient to Christ. We'll stay here as long as it takes. But others of you say, you know, I need to get, I need to get right, but I, I need to do it on a day where my friends and family could be here to jo- rejoice with me. I'm going to ask you to just take a step of accountability. Someone came to our church last week. They said they've been in church for 20 years, but they said, thank you for giving an invitation. Because I think it's a, a good step for sometimes just to step out and get on our knees before God and the congregation to grab each other and say, let's pray for something, to respond to what God has spoken to us about in His Word. I think it's good to do things immediately. It's one of Mark's favorite words, immediately, straightforward. And so maybe you're like, that's me. Would you just step out of your seat if you need to get baptized, for instance, and say, hey, this is just some accountability. I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to get that right when my family and friends can be here. I just want you to know about it, and we're going to do it. That's a good step. Whatever God's on your heart to do, especially if today you need to be saved, if you need to be saved immediately. That's a great word. Do not, do not wait. If you need to be saved, be saved today. You know why? You think about it. There's a lot of people in hell that were going to get saved. Don't be that person. Give, give your heart and life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ today. Be saved. Father, I pray your will be done. Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. You are our one You are our only righteousness. We have nothing, nothing to give to you, but God only to receive. Those who need to be saved, save them. Those who need to get this right in baptism, may they be baptized. God, do what you, God, do what you want. Do what you will here on earth like you do in heaven. I pray this in Jesus' name.